Maybe that's a little bit over the top, using a song called Coup d'etat for the outro music. Nobody hopes that's the case more than us. Let's take a look back at our 2007 interview with Chris Hedges. And Daniel, thank you for the uh, heads up on that one. Wrote Hedges in his book, American Fascist, The Christian Right and the War in America. Dr. James Luther Adams, my ethics professor at Harvard Divinity School, told us that when we were his age, he was then close to 80, we would all be fighting the Christian fascists. That warning, given to me nearly 25 years ago, came at the moment Pat Robertson and other radio and televangelists began speaking about a new political religion that would direct its effort at taking control of all institutions, including mainstream denominations and the government. Its stated goal was to use the U.S. to create a global Christian empire. It was hard at the time to take such fantastic rhetoric seriously, especially given the buffoonish quality of leaders of the Christian right who expounded it. But Adams warned us against the blindness caused by intellectual snobbery. The Nazis, he said, were not going to return with swastikas and brown shirts. Their ideological inheritors in America had found a mask for fascism in patriotism and the pages of the Bible. And all the studies have shown that the most bedrock support that Trump can count on in this country are the conservative Christian evangelicals. This does surprise people, given the fact that it, it's obvious to most that he has a problem with the truth. He has a problem keeping his fly zippered. He has a problem dealing with other human beings in an honest and straightforward way. Even in them, it must be quite clear that he's not a righteous man, and yet they embrace him. And one thing we've found very disturbing on this program is how far the anti-science movement has come in recent years. We trace it back to um, creationism, an effort to cook up something that sounded scientific to counter theories that the Christians didn't like. Personally, we see a straight arrow of this sort of thinking right into like, uh, well, the global warming deniers. When you got the likes of Exxon bankrolling you, you can, you, can, you can go a long way toward convincing people that, um, well, it's just, it's just not taking place. Next thing you know, you graft a few more wacky ideas onto it, and you've got Pizzagate and QAnon. Anyway, let's go back to our talk with Chris Hedges in 2007. You've noted that radical groups often project their actions onto what they say others are doing, and that Florida 2000 certainly seems to be perhaps an example of that. Yeah, that, that's something Richard Hofstetter understood in his essay, The Paranoid Politics of, or The Paranoid Style of American Politics. Um, you know, for instance, you know, when they talk about uh, creationism, which they have, you know, managed to sort of infiltrate this pseudoscience into our, some of our public school systems, they say, well, you know, evolution is an ideology peddled by scientists who are secular humanists, who, who are, are, you know, are perverting science because they're uh, subscribed to the ideology of secular humanism. Well, of course, that's exactly what they do. They, they pervert science. They've created creationist pseudoscience uh, that purports to use scientific method and, of course, is awash in scientific jargon to prove scientifically uh, that the Earth was created in six days and that the dinosaurs lived uh, at the same time as human beings. So oftentimes what they accuse those outside the movement of doing expose their own motives and because I think they're, they're very conscious that um, they must present a facade that they can only sort of go so far at the moment uh, in their drive to 
recreate a society that is ruled by ideology as, a, as opposed to in a society that honors and promotes dispassionate and honest intellectual and scientific inquiry. I can't help but interject at this moment. Uh, quite a laugh I got out of your book in describing the Creationist Museum where they were talking about dinosaurs being taken on Noah's Ark and how, yes, the Tyrannosaurus Rex did have those big teeth, but he could have used those to munch on watermelon and cantaloupe. <laughs> when you get down to the details, it exposes the absolute absurdity of the belief system. I mean, I was at a seminar where they were teaching Christian teachers how to tell their students about creation, and, and they had to get through that difficult question of the fact that God created light on the first day and the sun on the fourth day, and the instructor was telling the teachers, well, what God did is he created a temporary light. Well, there's nothing in Genesis that even hints that God created a temporary light, um, but they have to sort of bridge those absurdities together to propel their belief system forward, and the Creation Museum in Kentucky this $25 million monstrosity with animatronic dinosaurs and is a perfect example of that, where dinosaurs don't, didn't eat human beings in the Garden of Eden because they were plant eaters and everybody got along. So why did T-Rex have big teeth? Well, you know, so he could crack open coconuts. I mean, it is, it is, I think when one sort of narrows down what it is they're trying to shove down their throats, it's absurdist. Well, you've noted there's two institutions the Christian right does not criticize, the police and the military, and that in certain groups like these mercenary contractors we're seeing in, in, in Iraq or even on the streets of New Orleans, there's this disturbing element of a, of a private militia under some sort of Christian authoritarian leadership. Can you talk about America's holy warriors a little bit? Yeah, that's a really important point because, you know, all of these movements cannot come to power unless they build close alliances within the military and law enforcement, and, and the movement is working very hard to do that. Uh, they control about 50% of the chaplaincies in the armed forces and the service academies. Uh, they are carrying out uh, direct efforts, groups like Christian Embassy, to proselytize within the Pentagon, holding prayer breakfast. They have a promotional video that was taken off the website when it got exposed, but it had generals in uniform talking about how God advises them and you know, as they work on the Joint Chiefs of Staff. And we have the rise of this mercenary army in Iraq, groups like Blackwater, Blackwater is headed by Eric Prince, one of the charter members of the radical Christian right. He, he sees this mercenary army as an extension of the U.S. military. Um, and what happened when Hurricane Katrina struck, as you mentioned, these guys with their black uniforms, wraparound sunglasses, SUVs, and automatic weapons appeared on the streets of New Orleans. And I think that um, that, for me, was a very frightening moment, because should we enter a period of instability or chaos, or should we suffer another catastrophic terrorist attack, the deployment of mercenary forces, essentially outside the law, run by ideologues like Eric Prince that are directly tied to the Christian right, um, really uh, presages perhaps one of the most dangerous moments in, in our democratic history. And you're just talking about things that took place 13 years ago, but uh, it seems pretty appropriate to today, does it not? Here's what Dana Milbank of the Washington Post had to say just a few weeks ago. President Trump has gone from condoning violent white supremacists to asking for their help. In front of tens of millions of Americans watching the presidential debate, Trump refused to say the words white supremacy and would not 
pledged to a peaceful transfer of power. Instead, he told the Proud Boys, a far-right vigilante group, to stand back and stand by. Of course, the very next day, Trump feigned that he'd never heard of this gang of neo-Nazi thugs who marched with Klansmen in Charlottesville, Virginia, fomented violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin, and attacked protesters with bear mace and clubs in Portland, Oregon. After Trump was eventually pressured into telling the Proud Boys to stand down, hate groups took the rebuke with a wink. Reminded of what Trevor Noah joked about when this was going on, saying that nobody drives into a city with guns because they love someone else's business that much. That's some BS. No one has ever thought, oh, it's my solemn duty to pick up a rifle and protect that TJ Maxx. They do it because they're hoping to shoot someone. Or perhaps kidnap a governor after the president tweets, liberate Michigan. And it's worth noting that although Donald Trump portrayed the hundreds of people arrested nationwide in protests against racial injustice as violent urban left-wing radicals, but an AP review of thousands of pages of court documents told a different story. Very few of those charged appear to be affiliated with highly organized extremist groups, and many are young suburban adults from the very neighborhood Trump vows to protect from the violence in his re-election push to win support from the suburbs. And a lot of people have noticed that uh, the Department of Justice is pretty amped up in going after some of this. Defense attorneys and civil rights activists, noted the AP, were questioning why the Department of Justice has taken on cases to begin with. They say most belong in state courts where defendants typically get much lighter sentences, and they argue federal authorities appear to be cracking down on the protesters in an effort to stymie demonstrations. Well, we would say that, and to gain some political mileage. The article did cite that in one case in Utah where a police car was burned, federal prosecutors had to defend why they were bringing arson charges in federal court. They argued it was appropriate because the patrol car was used in interstate commerce. And writing in the New Yorker, Jelani Cobb had some interesting comments a few weeks back. To quote from the piece, In the fall of 1856, according to news reports, a Baltimore resident named Charles Brown was peaceably walking along the street when he was shot dead. It was a local election day, and Brown was in the vicinity of a 12th Ward polling place. Democrats attempting to enter it had been repelled by supporters of the American Party, better known as the Know-Nothings. For some two hours, the groups exchanged gunfire in what the Baltimore American described as guerrilla warfare. Brown was one of five killed, and the newspaper marveled that more lives were not lost. This was not an uncommon event. The Know Nothing Party, defined by its truculent nativism, frequently deployed violence to political ends, particularly against immigrant voters. As Richard Hofstetter and Michael Wallace in their book American Violence, a documentary history, wrote, In many districts, immigrants were stopped from voting entirely. The United States is considered one of the most stable democracies in the world, but it has a long, mostly forgotten history of election-related violence. In 1834, during clashes between Whigs and Democrats in Philadelphia, an entire city block was burned to the ground. Describing events that took place in Portland, Jelani Cobb said, Throughout these horrendous developments, Donald Trump has been at cross-purposes with the callings of his office. He has sown conflict where none existed and exacerbated it where it did. He goes on to say the Trump presidency has been an escalating series of insults, each enabling greater violations of norms, ethics, and laws. That pattern now seems poised to upend democracy itself. It began even before Trump took office. 
when he refused to release his tax returns, claimed that his Democratic opponent Hillary Clinton should be in jail, and openly enlisted a foreign adversary to help achieve that end. This year, he's removed five inspectors general from their posts and with the assistance of Attorney General William Barr, corrupted the Department of Justice to such a degree that we are now unsure of the legal meaning of the word guilty when applied to a Trump-connected defendant. Hard to argue. At this juncture, I was going to go back to our talk with Greg Palace from a few years back, but you know what? We're going to have him on next week. We'll cover the bases then. Let's take a different direction to talk about the guy who we're having a referendum on on Tuesday. Starting with a quote from David Hume. Where men are the most sure and arrogant, they are commonly the most mistaken. And although this will not substitute for that documentary, Unfit, I read it several months ago, I feel like reading it again. It is succinct. Some months back, Nate White, an articulate and witty writer from England, wrote the following in response to the question, why do some British people not like Donald Trump? (laughs) To which White said, a few things spring to mind. Trump lacks certain qualities which the British traditionally esteem. For example, he has no class, no charm, no coolness, no credibility, no compassion, no wit, no warmth, no wisdom, no subtlety, no sensitivity, no self-awareness, no humility, no honor, and no grace all qualities which his predecessor, Mr. Obama, was generously blessed. Plus, he added, we like a laugh. And while Trump may be laughable, he's never once said anything wry, witty, or even faintly amusing. Not once. Ever. And I don't say that rhetorically. I mean it quite literally. Not once. Not ever. And that fact is particularly disturbing to the British sensibility. For us to lack humor is almost inhuman. But with Trump, it's a fact. He doesn't seem to even understand what a joke is. His idea of a joke is a crass comment, an illiterate assault, a casual act of cruelty. Trump is a troll, and like all trolls, he's never funny and never laughs. He only crows or jeers. And scarily, he doesn't just talk in crude, witless insults. He actually thinks in them. His mind is a simple bot-like algorithm of petty prejudices and knee-jerk nastiness. There is never... Any underlayer of irony, complexity, nuance, or depth, it's all surface. Some Americans might see this as refreshingly upfront. Well, we don't. And worse, he is that most unforgivable of all things to the British, a bully. That is, except when he's among bullies, then he's suddenly transformed into a sniveling sidekick. There are unspoken rules to this stuff, the Queensberry rules of basic decency, and he breaks them all. He punches downwards, which a gentleman would, should, could, never do, and every blow he aims is below the belt. He particularly likes to kick the vulnerable or voiceless, and he kicks them when they are down. The unfit documentary does does talk about how one aspect of Trump is sadism. I thought that was going a bit far. But it gave example after example after example of the kind of things he tweets, in addition to the kind of things he does. Should we not be embarrassed as a nation that thanks to his policies and the kind of people he's been leaning on in the administration, we have 450 children from Honduras and Central America which have been taken to Mexico and dumped? Who does that? Well, a Trump does that. He just doesn't care. And they did point out something which I hadn't given much thought to, which which I, I, I don't know, I probably shouldn't be bringing up, but well, what the hell, let's do it. 
Trump has access to the nuclear codes. Now, in fairness, it seems to me that he's never shown much interest in blowing people up with nuclear weapons, but they did point out that when he's been briefed, he asked lots of questions about them. And either when he was a candidate for office or shortly after before becoming president, maybe it was the latter, he asked the question of his uh, advisors, well, what do we have those weapons for if not to use them? In the last days of the Nixon presidency, when it was clear the president was despondent and drinking too much, an order went out in the Pentagon that uh, any unusual orders related to the use of nuclear weapons needed to get cleared with the chain of command. It, uh, it seems funny to think about now, but I sure as hell hope people are thinking along those lines right now over at the Pentagon. Radiolab this past weekend did one of the best episodes I've, I've ever heard them do. It focused on the nuclear chain of command and how it is in those missile silos across the country. Well-trained military officers are instructed as to what to do if they have to launch a nuclear weapon. Much of the show focused on one Air Force officer who, who told his superiors he absolutely would do what was required of him, but he did have some lingering doubts about one aspect of the whole thing that troubled him. It was clear that if the orders to launch came down the chain of command, he was supposed to do his duty, and he assured his superiors that he would. But, he said, how do we know at the very top that the person making that decision has done the right thing? This sort of questioning did not go down well with his superiors. But he told Radio Lab he thought it was a legitimate question then, and he still does. One thing that was mentioned in passing, which is not central to our chat today, but I feel compelled to mention because it blew my mind, was the very strong inference in the discussion that when Harry Truman became president in 1945 and learned about this super weapon the military had, there is very strong evidence that the president actually wasn't asked if he thought we should drop the bomb. It's more like he was told we're going to drop the bomb. And since the powers of the presidency had just been thrust upon him, he perhaps wasn't as proactive as he might have been. There's all this talk later about the decision that Truman made uh, to level Hiroshima and Nagasaki, but it seems quite possible that that was something he made up later to make it look as though he'd been in charge all along. They repeated in this broadcast the statement made after the attack on Hiroshima had been uh, reported. It's curious to note that Hiroshima was described as a military base. And Truman wrote in his journal about this time that he was glad the U.S. would be attacking a military target and therefore women and children would not die. And there seems some compelling evidence that after the bomb was dropped on Nagasaki, which Truman apparently did not certify, he was told, oh yeah, and by the way, we've got another bomb, at which point he said, wait, 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 wait. Any future use of this weapon is going to be cleared by me. You know, if we ever do get Daniel Ellsberg back on this program, we will uh, we'll ask him about that. At any rate, a lot of people were upset when Donald Trump let the IMF treaty that was hammered out between Gorbachev and Reagan expire, as he's let most treaties expire. It seems this does not leave us or Russia safer. But maybe this is one good thing we can note about the, uh, the warm and fuzzy relationship between Vladimir Putin and Donald Trump. There just isn't a lot of belligerence being shown between uh, the two parties, and, and, and I guess that's good. 
One guy that had quite a bit to say in that documentary, Unfit, about the Trump-Russia relationship was Malcolm Nance. Nance is a globally recognized counterterrorism expert and intelligence community member. And by God, he's a guy we ought to consider bringing on this program in the future. He, he did talk at some length in the documentary about how this is a golden age for autocrats around the world. And of course, the Trump presidency has done nothing to stymie that. As we look at Duterte in the Philippines, Bolsonaro in Brazil, Ergodan in Turkey, Putin in Russia, and Mohammed bin Salman in Saudi Arabia. Well, it doesn't look as though uh, we're seeing things move uh, in a very strong democratic direction at the moment now, does it? I mean, we all know politics is politics, and it you know, creates strange bedfellows. And when the U.S. sees it in our interest to prop up some um, autocrat, well, sad to note, we generally do so. But I think in the past, we at least often, oftentimes had the good manners to be at least a little embarrassed about it. We do need to keep the discussion closer to home, I guess, at the moment. Um, to note that in the event that Joseph Biden is clearly the president-elect next week, I think a lot of our tensions will dissipate, starting with the COVID-19 pandemic. We're pretty sure that the time Biden would take control on January 20th, that we'd be pretty well ramped up for some major changes. We might even institute a new national policy on how it is we need to test, we need to wear masks, we need to social distance, you know, the usual stuff, so that we can bring this pandemic, if not to a close, at least down to a manageable level. It seems pretty clear this is going to get a lot worse before it gets better. The cold weather is just now arriving in the Northern Hemisphere. People are going to go indoors, and cases are going to explode. Some pretty reasonable models are projecting 400,000 dead by February 1st, and I haven't seen what anybody's projecting by June 1st. It didn't have to happen this way. It shouldn't have happened this way, but it did happen this way. Now the question is, how do we get this turned around? Well, one good way to do it is start listening to your health experts. You know, the Nikolai Vavilovs, not the Trofim Lysenkos. Europe is facing the fact, as we're going to surely have to do here as well, that, you know, some lockdowns are going to be necessary. They certainly won't be the kind of lockdowns that they've done in Australia or South Korea or China. Actions that were so draconian that they basically acted like circuit breakers and stopped the thing. By the time our national inactivity let the cat out of the bag, meaning by like early February, that really wasn't an option. There are so many unanswered questions about COVID still. We don't know how long people's immunity will last. We're not sure when a vaccine that's effective will be available for use on most of the public. But how refreshing it will be when uh, the health authorities of this country speak and we have some confidence that they're not just repeating some political nonsense they were forced to say. There's bound to be some things that are going to pop up along the way that no one could have foreseen. But if we respond to them in a logical, scientific way, there's hope we'll be able to handle it. I saw one piece that struck me in sciencenews.org about how it was that bat scientists are themselves socially distancing from their subjects, the bats. Article focused on Winifred Frick, a biologist at UC Santa Cruz, 
who notes that in the era of COVID, a hands-off approach and other precautions are crucial to protect both bats and people. I hadn't thought about it, but it certainly is possible that, you know, viruses that float around in bats could also go from humans to bats. And that would be a bummer to have COVID-19 circulating in North American bats. Although, to be honest, I think, uh, I think the danger of you getting it from, uh, you know, a, a bat uh, is probably a lot, a lot less than it is at, say, going to the Sturgis Motorcycle Rally in South Dakota. But, of course, there is this possibility that SARS-CoV-2 could go into North American bats and get mixed around and create yet a new virus, new coronavirus to cause mischief with the human race. Anyway, one thing we're praying for on this program, although we don't do a lot of praying, but I think we are this week, is that on next week's program, we will not be facing some sort of judicial nightmare where the election will be uh, uh, quote-unquote unclear, the results will be in doubt, or the doubt will be manufactured regarding the outcome, to which we just say, God help us all. And we're kind of saying that from an agnostic perspective, which somehow makes it worse. Anyway, the joker in that deck would certainly seem to be Amy Barrett, because she did not weigh in on the controversy raging up in Pennsylvania, and the rest of the justices locked up at 4-4 to with Roberts, God bless him, joining the liberals. They let stand a lower court ruling that votes could be counted in Pennsylvania past the deadline of Election Day. Let's, uh, let's, let's see whether she decides to stay on the sidelines if uh, she's needed to resolve a voting deadlock. Anyway, we need to lighten this up a little bit. I'm uh, looking at the Doonesbury column from this last weekend. And, you know, once again, Gary Trudeau, <laughs> Gary Trudeau seems to score big. It shows Trump in the Oval Office working with his uh, aide, who used to be an autocratic dictator in somewhere in Central Asia. First panel, Trump goes, I've been working on my closing argument. Second panel, I shut our borders to China in January, right? To which the aide goes, to all but 40,000 people. Yes, sir. Trump says, and because of my swift action, we only lost 100,000 lives, right? Well, it's closer to 230,000, but still impressive, sir. And we have what? 500 million people in this country? 328. 328. Okay, so what you're telling me is... I've saved 327,775,000 lives. To which the aide says, Ah, I wasn't, but sure, why not? Anyway, we got to wind this thing up. We're tired. We certainly appreciate the interview we aired last week with Stephen J. Harper and look forward to having him back on the show later this month. But we just couldn't resist (laughs) throwing out a few more things uh, today, so we've done so. We enthusiastically refer you to the website, trumppandemic.net. If you know anybody in a swing state who's not yet voted, who's still on the fence, and such people exist, maybe steering them to that site will help. This program was produced by Edward McMillan, as they all are. I am your host, Douglas Everett. You have been listening to Radio Parallax. And Ms. McMillan, as we go out, I think we should just take a really optimistic view that, you know, it's going to turn out okay. Trump will receive his walking papers. We will have sanity and science restored. We can tackle the COVID-19 pandemic in a sane way and maybe move on to some other issues like, hey, global warming.
That might be good. So let us just make the assumption that before long, it'll be happy days are here again.